morning, Masters. It's a pleasure to be here and to open up the Word of God with you. Uh, would you open up your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Luke? The book of Luke, we're going to be in chapter 24. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. If you're a note taker this morning, I've entitled this sermon, The Journey from Despair to Delight. The Journey from Despair to Delight. And let me read to you Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you open to us your word by your Holy Spirit today? 
Lord, would you keep me from error? Father, I pray that you, Christ, would be glorified and that you would be exalted and that we would see Jesus, our Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, would you be with us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Several decades ago, an evangelist and preacher by the name of Dwight L. Moody recalls that when he was a young man, he was called to preach suddenly a funeral sermon. A good many Chicago businessmen were to be there, and he said to himself, now it will be a good chance for me to preach the gospel to those men, and so I will get one of Christ's funeral sermons. This is what he recounts. I hunted all through the four Gospels trying to find one of Christ's funeral sermons, but I couldn't find any. I found he broke up every funeral he ever attended. He never preached a funeral sermon in the world. Death could not exist where Jesus was. When the dead heard his voice, they sprang to life. And I realized anew, Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 11. This is my desire for you today, master students, brothers and sisters, to see the Lord Jesus not only interrupting in the Gospels every funeral he ever attended, but by the power of God interrupting his own. It took these two disciples walking seven miles to see it, and I hope it only takes us 40 minutes this morning to see Jesus afresh and anew. If you're taking notes, there are five parts of the disciples' journey I want to set before you. Five parts of the disciples' journey, and I want to finish with four reasons why you can be certain of Christ's resurrection. Five parts of the disciples' journey and four reasons why you can be certain of Christ's resurrection. And the first part of our journey through this text begins with, number one, the disciples' despair. The disciples' despair. Let's look at the text, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking together with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But I want you to see in verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is at the end of the Passion Week, which we will get to in our calendar next week. This is the day that the Lord had risen on Sunday, and so these two disciples, though they were not part of the 12 or of the 11 at this point, of the apostles, they were disciples of Jesus, and so they had seen all of the events that had taken place during this past week, and now they are walking back to their home after the Passover, seven miles from Jerusalem. And in verse 16, Jesus comes near, and it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is a divine passive tense, and it's translated well, their eyes were kept from recognizing them, and this shows that this is a divine, either enabling or disabling of the Lord's revealing. This is pretty consistent in the book of Luke. In Luke 9, verse 45, this is what he says. 
Jesus says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. Or, listen to Luke 18, verse 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For... He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day rise. Jesus is very plain with what he says to his disciples here in both accounts. In Luke 9 and Luke 18, he says this is what is going to happen. And we can see with the full revelation of God that this indeed did happen. And we can see with clearer eyes But it says, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Brothers and sisters, this shows that it is the Lord who chooses to reveal his Christ. It is the Lord who chooses whether or not to allow one to believe or disbelieve, and yet he says, come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Look at verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And what do they do? This question makes them freeze. It actually says they stopped. This is the first time throughout their entire journey on the road to Emmaus that they stop in their tracks. And it's as if this answer so shocked them that they could not walk and talk about this at the exact same time. Now, this may have indicated that it was two men, because men are pretty bad at multitasking. (laughs) Either way, the text isn't for sure. It could be two men. It could be a husband and a wife. The text isn't clear. But Jesus is drawing them out with his questions. He's drawing them out to see what is in their hearts. And he draws out their bewilderment at at... their apparent ignorance, at his apparent ignorance. It's not as if Jesus didn't know these things, but he's drawing them out. And they stood still looking sad. And I want you to see, I want you to enter into this story with them, journey with them as they are on this road. And then one of them, verse 18, named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus just asked him a simple question. He says, what things? Look at their view of who Jesus was. Verse 19. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. Those are the first two things that they believed about Jesus. He was a man. He was a prophet. They even saw that he was a prophet that was mighty indeed. And word. He didn't just speak mighty things, he did mighty things. He didn't just do do mighty things, he spoke with authority. And it was before God and all the people. They viewed him as a man. They viewed him as a prophet. They viewed him as authoritative. But in the end, look at this, they were short-sighted. 
Their view of Messiah was far too short. And if you have a far too shortened view of Messiah, you are not viewing Jesus rightly at all. Verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. We had hoped. Hope is a powerful thing. And when hope is gone, despair sets in. This is the very same word and of redeem as is seen, there's only two other places in the New Testament of where this word is used, and it's used in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, where Titus says, the, the letter to Titus that Paul writes, says that Jesus died so that he might redeem a people. The other place is 1 Peter 1.18, to ransom is the way that it's translated in the ESV. It has this idea of buying back. It has this idea of ransoming. Buying someone with a price, as 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about in the context of sexual immorality. It says that you were bought with a price and you are not your own. So therefore glorify God in your body. So I want you to feel the despair that the disciples have at this point. Their Messiah is dead. The second part of the journey is the disciples' unbelief. Look with me at verses 22 through 24. The disciples' unbelief. So what is their answer? What is their answer? Now we go to the second part of where they tell Jesus, hey, these things happened to Jesus of Nazareth. But what has happened since he has died? Look at 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was dead, alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did him did they did not see. Look at the evidence that they have. They're sad, they're melancholy, they're depressed, they're going back to their former lives, they're going back to their home. And look at the evidences that they have that Jesus is risen. The first one is the third day. He had told his disciples that he's going to die. He had told them that he was going to be resurrected. And it is the third day since these things have happened, and the way that the Greek language is constructed here is that it emphasizes that this was a perpetual third day. You can even translate it, one is keeping this a third day. In other words, he's dead, so why hope? They saw him die. But look at the evidences that they have. First, they have the women's testimony. Then they have the disciples' testimony. They have no body. There's a vision of angels. Look at all of the evidences that they have. Do you see that in the text? Let's look at Jesus' answer. Even in the face of so much evidence, their hearts did not believe he was raised. 
Their unbelief was so strong, their hearts were so dead, their eyes were so darkened, their minds were so dull, their understanding of the scriptures was so limited that they would not believe. And so, this leads us to our third part of the disciples' journey, their ignorance. The disciples' ignorance. Verses 25 through 27, look at it with me. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all things, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The problem that the disciples had was not the evidence that they had, it was their view of their Messiah. They had no inclination or no expectation for a Messiah who was going to suffer, even though the scriptures have said it is necessary. This word necessary in Greek is used in a couple of different places, and I want to explain this to you so that way it might be helpful necessary. It was necessary that Christ suffered. Luke 22, 7, this is the exact same word, and it is in reference to the Passover. Luke 22, verse 7 says, then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Did you hear that? Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb, what? Had to be sacrificed. Same word. It was necessary that the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed on that specific day because if there was no Passover lamb, there was no atonement. Acts 1, the same word is used. Acts 1, 16 and 17, it says, brothers, when Peter is talking to those who crucified Christ, it says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Jesus' suffering was not something that God just decided at the last minute. Jesus' suffering was not something that God was working together and then throwing things together as history moved forward. Jesus is the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. It was in the ordained plan of God, and it happened the very minute, the very second, and the very hour that God ordained it. And so, the problem of these disciples and the problem with some of you today might be that you have a view of Messiah that is not consistent with the Scriptures and that is not in its fullness. Messiah's suffering before his exaltation was all over the Old Testament. Think about it for a minute. Just do a 30,000-foot flyby of the Old Testament. What are some of the characters that you see that are exalted but only after their suffering? Think of Joseph. Joseph has all of these great dreams that his brothers and that his father and that his mother are going to bow down to him. But what happens? He's sold into slavery. He's taken to Potiphar's house. He's wrongly accused. He's thrown in prison for how many years? Two years. And he's forgotten about. Nobody cares about Joseph. But God remembered. What about Moses? Moses, drawn out from the water, made to be the next in line for the throne in Egypt. 
and then sent into the wilderness for 40 years to be a shepherd before he would come back to Egypt to redeem the people with God's hand. What about Daniel? Think about the book of Daniel. When Daniel goes and he's before the king and he's telling the king these dreams and these visions and he's exalted after his captivity. And then once he's exalted after his captivity, then there's a new king that forgets about him And then he's brought back into the throne room. He interprets more. And the next chapter, in chapter 6, he's thrown into the den of lions. What about David? What about David? Do you think that David was wondering, God, where are you? When am I going to ascend to the throne? When he's out in the cave of Adullam or he's out in the Negev when Saul is chasing after him. And then God exalts him. What about the prophecies of even Genesis 3.15 of where there is going to come one who will crush the serpent's head but his heel will be bitten? Or Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. So the sufferings of Christ this morning were always predicted alongside his exaltation. Or what about Philippians chapter 2? You guys know that, right? You guys know Philippians 2, where it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself what? Nothing. And taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What's the next verse? Therefore, what did God do? God highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. And let me tell you something, master student. If Jesus, if the Son of God suffered before his exaltation, what makes you think that you will not be sanctified by the same method? Have you thought about that? Suffering now before exaltation and glory later? God always operates in this way with his people. If you look at Hebrews chapter 2, it says that the son learned obedience through what he suffered. And he is able now to sympathize with those who are tempted. And we always talk about, at least early on in my Christian life, I want to know if Jesus is with me, if Jesus is suffering with me, and he is. Jesus is with you in your sufferings, but let me offer you a point for your consideration today is that often the Gospels and the New Testament don't talk about Jesus being in our sufferings as often as they talk about us getting to share in His. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, that I may share in His sufferings. 1 Peter 4.13 says the exact same thing that we may share in Christ's sufferings. Do you see your suffering today as being able to share in the sufferings in which your Lord suffered? It is a joy. It is a privilege that we would share in his suffering. So, verse 27, what does Jesus do? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When I get to heaven, if there's an opportunity to go back and look at some of the things that happened visually instead of reading them in the scriptures, I would love to be there for that conversation. I would love to be a fly on the wall for some of your conversations in the dorms. Some of you are thinking, no, I really wouldn't want that. But I would love to have been there to see this. Jesus, the one of whom the scriptures foretold, is the one that's telling them, hey, this is about me. And I love this word interpreted. Some of your versions may say explained, but this word in the New Testament, besides this point right here, is always in regards to language and translation. Luke is demonstrating by his use of this word that this kind of explanation that Jesus was using is demonstrating that it's like the disciples are hearing this in a whole new language and they need someone to help guide them along. But it's better, I think, that Luke didn't tell us exactly what Jesus said. As much as I would have loved to have seen what this would be, what Jesus would have said, I think it's better that Luke doesn't tell us this. So we can go back and look at the New Testament authors and what they wrote about Christ to see how the Old Testament points to Jesus. Now, I want to be very clear. This is not, what this text is not saying is that the entire Old Testament, every single text, you need to read Jesus into. This is not what it is saying. So if you go to text and you're looking, trying to see, I don't see Jesus here. But let me tell you something. This is saying that every Old Testament finds its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus. And so you can look at the Old Testament with all of its types, with all of its shadows, and with all of its symbols, with all the kings, and say Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords that every king pointed to but failed. All the priests, every single priest served for a while, served the people, made atonement by the sacrifices, but could not keep his office. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 says that Jesus keeps his priesthood permanently. What about the prophets? There were so many prophets in the Old Testament scriptures, but Deuteronomy 18 says that, that there says that there is coming one that is greater than Moses. I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak. All the battles and all the victories, David and Goliath, Israel and the other nations, points to Jesus ultimately showing that he is going to be victorious. Friends, this entire Bible that we have is about our Lord Jesus, but you want to be careful with looking at the Old Testament and trying to read in him in somewhere where the New Testament authors do not put him. And so here is the implication for you. You're saying, Daniel, why are you explaining this to me? Why are you going through this with me? And let me tell you, if you are going to believe in the Messiah that the scriptures reveal, the Lord has to open your eyes to the correct interpretation of them. Did you hear me? The Lord must open your eyes to the correct interpretation of them. It does not, and listen to me, it does not come about by intellectual knowledge alone. 
It comes by the revelation of God. It comes by the revelation of God. The fourth part of our journey is the disciples' understanding. Now we begin to see, now they're starting to glimpse who Jesus is. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. Their spiritual hunger is seen by them imploring Jesus to stay. They had gotten a taste of who Jesus was. They had gotten a taste of the true understanding of the scriptures, and they wanted more. Is that you? Now, during this time, in the background of the Old Testament and during the New Testament, hospitality would have been common. It was to be expected, but there's an urgency. Do you see that in the text in which they offer this hospitality? They're not begrudging, and they're, they're not saying, oh, well, I guess we should offer for him to stay with us because it's getting dark out and it's getting dangerous. There might be thieves and robbers on the loose, and we don't want this man who, to be robbed. No, they urge him strongly, and they say, no, we want you to stay with us. Please come. And I want you to see in verse 30 what happens. Jesus comes to stay with them, and what does he do when they are at table, when they get down for dinner and the food is served? The plates are laid open. It is not the host that begins to break the bread. Who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who breaks the bread. Jesus is the one who blesses it. Jesus assumes the role of the host as the head of the house. Now, could you imagine someone coming to your parents' house and them all of a sudden pretending like it's theirs? They're saying, okay, no, no, you, 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 you stay there. I'll go into the kitchen and I'll make something up. It's going to be great. You would think they're crazy, wouldn't you? Wait, what, what, is, what is this guy doing? This is, this is our home. This is my home. But Jesus says, guess what? When I come into your house, I am going to be Lord. And this is what it means for you when you believe and you trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. When you receive Jesus into your house, he takes up residence there as Lord, not as a guest. And so, when he breaks the bread, when he blesses it, when he gives it to them, that's when they see. That is when they see. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what it was that caused them to believe in Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, well, maybe it was the way in which he broke bread. He doesn't say, oh, well, maybe it was the way in which he prayed, and he says, my father, that that reminded him that it was Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, well, as he's handing them the bread, they see the nail-pierced hands. Luke doesn't tell us this because there is not one specific thing that causes them to see that Jesus is Lord that we cannot see today. Jesus is not among us today, and so we do not believe in Jesus because we can see his nail-pierced hands. He's not here. We do not hear Jesus pray but it is the Lord who revealed it to them. And God reveals it to you. Not in one 
particular way at a meal with Jesus because Jesus is ascended. He reveals it to you through the scriptures of which we have. And so now they understand that it is the Lord. Their minds went from being darkened and their eyes went from being kept from seeing it before and now their eyes are enlightened. They see. The scales are off. They went from having faithless hearts with all of this evidence pointing that Jesus is alive to believing hearts. They went from having ignorant minds, not understanding the scriptures, not understanding that the Messiah had to suffer, to instructed minds. And it was God who opened their minds and hearts. God who revealed. Listen to what St. Augustine says. He says, He was at the same time on the road to Emmaus, seen and concealed. But where did the Lord wish to be recognized? It was in the breaking of the bread. It was for our sake that he didn't want to be recognized anywhere but there. That's how you recognize Christ. You understand the scriptures, you come to him and you partake of his body and of his blood. Otherwise, what does he say in John? He says, otherwise you have no part in me. And whether or not Luke is alluding to the Lord's Supper in this text, it's not clear, but there was something about this moment which caused the disciples to recognize him, and it wasn't something that was foreign to us. It is what has been revealed. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of our Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing there is he's saying, when God said, let light shine out of darkness, let there be light, he has done the exact same thing in your heart and it is not of your own volition, it is of nothing that you have done, it is solely of his. And he receives glory. Finally, the fifth part of their journey is their delight. This journey from despair to delight now culminates in verse 32 through 35. And they say to each other, did not our hearts what? Did not our hearts what? Burn. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Did not our hearts burn? Think back upon your life, if you're a believer this morning, about the times of when you have heard the scriptures being given and the gospel being preached and your heart leaping at who Jesus is. Your heart burning at who Jesus is. Or at the very first moment of your conversion when you had those scales taken off and you see him rightly as suffering. This is what was happening to them in that moment. Brothers and sisters, a heart does not burn for a dead savior. It burns for the living one. Would you turn with me over to Luke 1? 
Luke chapter 1, Luke gives us this reason for why he writes the gospel. And now I want to transition from looking at the disciples' journey to explaining to you a little bit more apologetically of why you can believe Jesus is alive. Luke chapter 1, look at the very beginning of the book in verses 3 and 4. It seemed good to me also, this is Luke talking, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, a most excellent Theophilus. Why? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty. So what Luke is doing is he's saying at the very beginning of the book, he's saying, I want you to be certain, Theophilus, I want you to be certain, lover of God, that you have certainty of the things in which you've been taught. You can know that you believe that Christ is risen. And at the very end of the book, this is what he's doing. If you look and just glance, go back to Luke 24. Go back to Luke 24 and just glance with me at some of maybe the chapter headings in your Bibles of where Jesus is showing himself. Look at where Jesus is showing himself. He's showing himself to the women. He's showing that he is alive to Peter. He's showing that he's alive on the road to Emmaus to these two disciples. And he's showing himself to the 11 later on if you just keep glancing down. And what Luke is doing is he's giving you account at the very end of the book to say it's not just that there was this rumor going about that we couldn't find Jesus. He showed himself again and again and again and again after his resurrection. And I want to give you four reasons why you can move from despair to delight this morning in Christ Jesus. Whether it is despair in your struggle against sin despair in unbelief, despair in your lack of assurance, despair in not knowing if Jesus really is who he says he is, you can move to delight in him this morning. The first reason why the resurrection of Christ is certain, the first reason why the resurrection of Christ is certain is because of the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses I mentioned before, but let's look at it again. You see in Luke 24, you see the women. They attest to his resurrection. And if Luke is going to write a gospel of where he's saying, I want you to be sure, in the first century, you don't go and say with the first example that Jesus is raised with the testimony of women. It was discredited during that time. Secondly, the apostles. Third, these disciples. Fourth, 500 others at one time. If you want a list of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, gives you an entire list of Paul saying he appeared to this person, he appeared to that person. Oh, and guess what? He appeared to these two. It was public. Look at Acts 16 very briefly. I'm sorry, Acts 26. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 26. Now Paul saw the risen Christ on his road to Damascus. He did not see him immediately after his resurrection, but he did see Christ exalted at the Father's right hand. And Paul is going before King Agrippa, 
before he goes to Rome. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 26, verses 22 through 29. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Verse 23, that the Christ must suffer. And that, by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying things, these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded, listen to this, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Do you see that? The resurrection of Jesus has not been done in a corner. This isn't something that the disciples conjure up. This is true. first reason why you can be certain is the eyewitnesses. The second reason why you can be certain are, are the physical appearances. Jesus walks with the disciples to Emmaus for how many miles? Seven. And the way that the language of the Greek is constructed here is that Jesus actually overtook them. This is maybe one of the only times where Jesus was speed walking. He overtakes them. And let me tell you why that, this is important. Do some of you love the Princess Bride movie? Have you guys seen that? Okay. Do you know in the scene of when the giant and uh, Inigo Montoya, they come to Miracle Max, and they say that Wesley is dead? Buttercup's love is dead? And what does Miracle Max say? He says he's not dead. He's what? He's mostly dead. He's mostly dead, and he takes, I don't know what you call it, but you know the fan-looking thing in the fireplace and blows air into him? And slowly he starts to recuperate? Let me tell you something. This is not Jesus. Jesus is not mostly dead. This is a theory called the swoon theory that Jesus revived in the coolness of the tomb. And over three days, he revived and then is walking with the disciples to Emmaus. Let me tell you something. I can't walk seven miles if I stub my toe in the morning. (laughs) If I stub my toe in the morning, I'm limping the rest of the day. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But for Jesus to overtake perfectly healthy disciples for seven miles right after is impossible. And that's what Luke is proving to you. Let me ask you something. Look at verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 41. Verse 41 of Luke 24. Do you know of a ghost that eats? I don't. When Jesus eats with his 11 disciples. Do you know of a spirit that can fake a physical touch as John chapter 20 proves and let Thomas touch him and feel his wounds? Do you know of a spirit that can grab fish and break bread and make breakfast? In John 21, when Jesus eats with Peter, as our president opened up this past Friday. I didn't think so. 
Jesus wants us to be sure that he is really alive and that he is physically and that he is bodily resurrected. And because, as Colossians 3 says, that we are hidden as his body with Christ, we will be resurrected as well. So we have the eyewitnesses, we have the physical appearances, and then third, we have fulfilled prophecy. This is the third reason why you can be certain the resurrection of Christ and is that the, the Messiah had to suffer and die before his glory. Romans 5, 6 says that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the very hour when the Passover lamb was to be killed in Jerusalem, Jesus was suffering outside the gate. For he is our Passover lamb. Every single Old Testament prophecy of his has come true. And he came to fulfill the law, brothers and sisters, right down to the very last prophetic stroke. And he did all the work that the scriptures said. The eyewitnesses, the physical appearances, the fulfilled prophecy, finally the changed lives. The changed lives. Those who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, they were never the same. They were never the same. Peter went from being a denying coward to someone who stands boldly before the chief priests and the very ones who crucified Christ. Paul goes from being one who persecuted the church of God to the one who established the church of God. They were steadfast in faith and they were never doubting. They were unwavering in suffering. They were always rejoicing and they were faithful in death. Never denouncing. Now, let me speak directly to you today. You can have as much intellectual knowledge as you want about Jesus Christ for 50, 60, 70 years. But here is my fear for some of you. My fear for some of you is that you're going to learn about Christ, but you're not truly going to know Christ. You're going to hear information about Jesus, but you are not going to know him because you don't want to make him your Lord. You can know a lot about Christ, but have you been changed by Christ? Have you truly believed, and does your not heart burn when you hear about him? Do your affections yearn to please the Lord? Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Religious Affection, says, but it is doubtless true and evident from the scriptures that the essence of all true religion lies in holy love. And that in this divine affection consists the whole of religion. In other words, when you see the glory of the risen Christ, your life is never the same. Your aim is now to please him, as 1 Timothy 1.5 says, to flee sin, to know him through his word, and to enjoy being in his presence. And this does not mean, Christian, that you will not stumble but it shows the direction where you are going. And so I plead with you, if you do not know him this morning, be reconciled to God. Do not be turned away by a suffering Christ and a bloody cross. What a day for these two disciples, huh? Going from the depths of their despair to their delight. 
They moved from utter despair to complete delight in just a few short hours. And I want to ask you, where are you on this journey today? If you are despairing, thinking that there is no hope for you, the Lord Jesus has been raised and is alive and will redeem you. Only believe. If you are doubting and unconvinced that Jesus is truly alive, I pray that these proofs that I've explained to you today would break down your skeptical and hardened heart. If you're ignorant, I pray that the word of God will help you understand that the Messiah did have to suffer and then be raised to accomplish this redemption for you. There was no other way. If you're unwilling to believe in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, there is coming an eternal judgment for you. Come to him. Oh, please come to him. And then finally, if you have believed in him, he is your Lord and Savior, and he trusts that, I trust that he is for many of you. You can be full of joy because Jesus is alive. He rules, he reigns, he will return. Be faithful. Be faithful. Keep believing and walk holy. As we close, I want you to turn to 1 Peter. Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Listen to these words from the Apostle Peter who saw Jesus risen only a few verses after these disciples. Verse 8. Though you, Christian, have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Oh God, would you impress the word on on our hearts this morning? Help those who do not believe to come to faith and help those who do believe to continue to walk knowing that Christ has been risen. In Jesus' name we pray.